I read about a company several years ago that came out with a cake mix which required zero ingredients. Just add water. No eggs, no milk, no oil. Just water, a cake pan, and an oven. And this new product was a total flop. No one was interested. So they got their heads together and the company decided to change the mix a bit so that one egg was required. Just a single egg. Sca sales skyrocketed. People loved it. And I wonder, why are we like that? What makes us want to add to something that is already complete? All around us, just a thought or a touch or a word away, God is wanting to know, he's letting us know that he loves us. Yet we have trouble believing that his love is unconditional and available to all, no additional ingredients necessary. It just sounds too good to be true. It's a, it's a kind of love that we're certainly unfamiliar with. We say we love unconditionally, but it doesn't take too many mistakes or too many potholes in the road to reveal a few conditions we actually do embrace before we completely love someone. Since we have trouble understanding unconditional love among ourselves, it's easy then to project our experience onto God, even though we're told a thousand different ways that his love is available to everyone, no strings attached. I've come to realize we can't talk about this topic too much. I've had too many honest conversations with people where, at the core, the nature of God's unconditional love is unsecured in their heart. For too many of us, deep down in the caverns of our heart, we can't let go of the thought that surely we must do something to earn, to deserve, and to qualify for God's love. And I'll tell you this, if, if we relax our grip on God's unconditional love, we will quickly slip into an unbiblical view of his love. And that has to be one of Satan's most effective lies that he draws us into. This lie leads to us feeling tired, burdened, inadequate, alone, uh, weak, because we simply can't sustain enough goodness to meet what we perceive to be God's threshold. The false narrative which Satan sells us sounds like this. God only loves us when we're good. God only loves us when we're worthy. God only loves us when we, when we get it right. And too many of us believe when we, when we pull back the covers that we believe our behavior determines how God feels about us. Depending on how good or how right or how committed we are in the moment, God either turns his face toward us or he welcomes us into his arms. Do you have thoughts that sound like that? Do you go back and forth wondering, am I in? Am I out? Perhaps you think God stays hacked off at you until you genuinely ask for forgiveness and experience consequences and remorse. And then if you're one of the fortunate ones, he might allow you back into his good graces. Everywhere we look, we clearly see an environment that's based on performance. The, the bumper sticker that says, my child's smarter than, than your child. Or the dad who asks his preschooler, you know, were you a good, a good girl at school today? Meaning, did you treat people nicely? Did you follow directions? Did you not hit anybody? One of the questions Mary and I were asked many times by our kids when they were young is, are you mad? Are you mad at me, Mommy? Are you mad at me, Daddy? It's like, yes. <laughs> I, I'm pretty mad. Why'd you put the kitten in the dryer, you know? <laughs> I guess they had reasons to believe that if we were mad, then they were on the outside. So they just needed to check in to see where they stood because... 
If we were mad, we might not love them. We're, we're quick to affirm good behavior and sometimes even quicker to point out bad behavior. And that's tough for parents to teach right and wrong without getting that confused with the constant and consistent love that we have for our kids. This performance-based business is pervasive. I know we're a long way from Christmas, but this is what came to my mind as I was working on this sermon. Uh, six months from now, we'll all receive one of those dreaded Christmas cards in the mail. Uh, and I bet you know the one I'm talking about. It's the one with a letter in it, and it has writing on both sides. And the letter tells you from this, it's come, it comes from the same person every year, and it basically says, read how great our family is compared to yours. It might read something like this. Our 13-year-old Tommy just got accepted at MIT. He's close to finding a cure for cancer, and he recently won the spelling bee, and he got his braces off this year. And though our daughter had a down year, she still managed to start up her own company at age 16. Um, she has 40 employees now, and they're about to go public. Oh, and she was also chosen homecoming queen. Have you ever been tempted to write a letter that's brutally honest for Christmas and put it in the envelope? Our son just got mom tattooed on his knuckles. <laughs> it worked out that way since he lost one finger in a bar fight. My husband and I are barely talking. Our house is about to go into foreclosure. We're both driving for Lyft to cover the bills, and the dog broke out of the electric fence. Now we're going to have puppies. <laughs> we make a huge mistake when we project our performance-based economy onto God's way of doing things. And with God, there's no hiding. There's no faking. There are no tricks. So we make a list that, if we follow it, puts us in God's favor. And so I wonder, what's on your list? What behaviors do you think are necessary to secure God's love? And in your mind, just, just be as honest as you can right now. Is it go to church? Well, how often do you need to go? Is it to read your Bible? Well, how many chapters a day? Is it to give generously? Well, how much am I supposed to do? to get God's love. How about to pray? How, how often? For how long? You need to keep sin at a minimum. As a friend of mine used to say, don't drink, smoke, or chew, and don't date the girls who do. <laughs> and so with this list in hand, we then can control how God feels about us. Having that control is what makes a performance-based system so attractive and so addicting. Some time ago, I ran a transcript of an interview um, between a Chicago Tons, a Suns Times reporter and Barack Obama. This is, a, this is a long time ago. It was an interview from March 2004. And uh, this is when um, Obama was running for U.S. Senate in, in Illinois. And the interview focused on President Obama's faith. And toward the end of the interview, the uh, reporter asked this question to him. Do you believe in heaven? He said, do I believe in the harps and clouds and wings? She said, no, a spiritual, place, a, spiritually, a spiritual place you go after you die. And here's his response. What I believe in is that if I live my life as well as I can, then I will be rewarded. I don't presume to have knowledge of what happens after I die, but I feel very strongly that whether the reward is in the here and now or in the hereafter, the aligning myself to my faith and my values is a good thing. When I tuck in my daughters at night and I feel like I've been a good father to them and I see in them that I'm in transferring values that I got from my mother and they're kind people and they're honest people 
and they're curious people, that's a little piece of heaven. She then asked, do you believe in sin? He says, yes. What is sin? His response is, being out of alignment with my values. Well, what happens if you have sin in your life? He says, I think it's the same thing as the question about heaven. In the same way that if I'm true to myself and my faith, that that is its own reward. And when I'm not true, it is its own punishment. I think, I think President Obama's response is pretty common. If we took a microphone out on the streets around here and we asked the same question the reporter asked, most people would respond like President Obama did, both those who don't believe in Jesus and those who do believe in Jesus. Because we can't push back very far from a performance-based religious system. In these responses lies a message of control. If I live a certain way, uh, then I'll receive a certain reward. If I'm true to myself, then a prescribed reward will, will come my way. We don't hear a single hint that Jesus has to do with any of this. It's all about my behavior and my values. And there's a word which distinctly describes our attempt to control God's love for us by our behavior. And the word is legalism. One reason we tend toward legalism is it provides a sense of control. Even though legalism leaves us in a constant uh, state of anxiety, did I do enough? Am I right enough? Am I good enough? We continue to buy into this false narrative because it gives us at least a little bit of control. The Apostle Paul writes about legalism in most every one of his letters because he knows we can't talk about this topic too often. He wonders why people feel the need to add to a complete recipe. Why, why add ingredients to a salvation? Specifically for Paul, why preach that salvation requires circumcision? Paul proclaims a pure grace. No mixtures, no additives, no alterations. And I suspect everyone in here agrees with Paul on this issue. Not a single person in here would preach Jesus plus circumcision. But that was the issue in Paul's day. What are the issues in our day? How about... Again, Jesus plus financial donations. Are you giving all you can? How about maybe it's Jesus plus heritage? Were you raised in the right church? Or Jesus plus doctrine? What are the details of your conversion? Do you take communion monthly or weekly or annually? Do you use instruments or are you a cappella? Are you Calvinist or Minion? Are you pre-post or amillennial? You know, and the list can just go on. Or how about Jesus plus evangelism? How many people have you brought to Christ? Legalism is the theology of Jesus plus. Legalists don't dismiss Christ. They trust Christ a lot. They just don't trust Christ alone. Who would look at the cross of Christ and say, great work, Jesus, but it, I'm sorry, it just wasn't quite enough. I'll take up the slack from here. Legalism discounts God and the process makes a mess out of us. Here's a line that is definitely true. Legalism is joyless because legalism is endless. There's always another person to teach. There's always another class to attend. There's always another Christian to straighten out. There is no joy in legalism because you never know when you're finished. Gary Thomas has some pretty clever thoughts on legalism. Uh, he writes these couple of sentences. If avoiding certain sins makes us proud and self-righteous, 
then all we've done is act like an alcoholic who thinks he's superior to another because he gets drunk on vintage wine instead of malt liquor. Everyone in here needs to know that Jesus provides a different narrative. His narrative isn't one tying our performance to love, to his love or acceptance. In John's gospel, one clear principle John states is that when you see Jesus treat people a certain way, you know that's the way he can treat, he's going to treat you as well. Because Jesus says in John 1, when you've seen me, you've seen who? You've seen the Father. So when Jesus invites Matthew to be one of his disciples, we learn something important about God. Matthew was an Israelite who worked for the Romans as a tax collector. For the Jews, the Romans were the bad guys. Tax collectors were notorious for skimming uh, off the top to pad their own pockets. And being selected by a rabbi to be a disciple was a big deal. So after being chosen, Matthew throws a party so his friends can come meet Jesus. And Jesus seems to enjoy the opportunity to get to know other tax collectors and sinners. But the Jewish ruling party hated Jesus for this kind of behavior. They hated him for this stuff. They disapproved of the kind of love and acceptance the Son of God put on display. And when the Pharisees were challenging Jesus' choice of his friends, he says this line, I've come not to call the righteous, but the sinners. Here's a, a quote from uh, Ragamuffin Gospel by Brennan Manning. He has a thought about this particular statement Jesus made. <clears throat> he said, here's, here's the revelation, bright as the evening star. Jesus comes for sinners, for those as outcast as tax collectors, and for those caught up in squalid choices and failed dreams. He comes for corporate executives, street people, superstars, farmers, hookers, addicts, IRS agents, and AIDS victims, and even used car salesmen. The passage, the passage should be read, reread, and memorized. Every Christian generation tries to dim the blinding brightness of its meaning because the gospel seems too good to be true. Jesus' message just seems too good to be true. So good that we try to dim the message with a Jesus plus system. We make God's love more about our performance than we do about his performance. Our message sometimes sounds like this. God will surely love you when you get your act together, God will love you when you cut a few vices from your life. God will start loving you when you start living like a believer. But that's not what Jesus taught. Listen to the most well-known statement in the Bible in John 3. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save it through him. Whoever believes in him is what? not condemned. Those words are not hard to understand, but we've been known to make them sound more like this. For God was so mad at the world that he sent his son to come down and tell him to shape up, and that whosoever would shape up would have eternal life. Indeed, God did send his son into the world to condemn it, in order that the world might be saved through good works. It's a very different message from the one Paul shares in Romans 5. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will you see, will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Let me personalize that. While I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. While you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. God's love is in spite of our behavior not because of our behavior. 
a well-known parable Jesus told makes the heart of God unmistakably clear. <clears throat> it's in Luke 15, the prodigal uh, son parable. Um, this boy is called the prodigal son because he's reckless and thoughtless and rebellious and wayward. Um, and though the younger son lives up to that label, the father may be the most reckless character in this parable. Uh, you, if you're in Luke 15, you can kind of peruse the story as I hit the highlights. The younger of the two sons hit his dad up to give him his inheritance early. Um, and with that money in hand, he heads down to South Miami and hits every club, every beach party, every happening event. Um, and he runs out of money, and now he's on the streets. And soon he begins missing home. So that's where he heads. In Jesus' day, his father, this father had a right to take his son before the elders of the community and have him stoned to death. No one would have questioned or thought less of his dad if he had chosen to go that route. By, by the way, we, we typically don't have a problem with God's judgment, do we? If he had torn into this kid when he returned home, we wouldn't have been surprised. Lightning bolts hit Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, good job, God. Those heathens deserve that. The Egyptians floating in the Red Sea, go God. You know, 40 years of wandering uh, for a bunch of ungrateful Israelites, they needed to be taught a lesson. It makes perfect sense. Discipline is easier to swallow while grace gets stuck in our throats. Here's a line from uh, Max Licato. I've never been surprised by God's judgment, but I have been stunned by his grace. So David goes from psalmist to voyeur to psalmist again. Zacchaeus, the crook, morphs into Zacchaeus, the party host for Jesus. It seems like God is more intent on looking for ways to get us home than he is to keep us out. So the father in Jesus' parable sees this boy at the end of the driveway, and he ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him, and then he throws a party. And nowhere in Jesus' parable does the father ever endorse or condone his son's choices. That's not the point. The point is, even when we're at our worst, God still loves us with a reckless kind of love. And don't miss the two verses that kind of set up this parable in chapter 15, the first two verses there. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. That's the context for Jesus to throw down this parable. Jesus is being criticized for loving the wrong people, for hanging out with the wrong crowd. If he's truly the son of God, he would know better. And that's exactly the point the older brother makes in Jesus' parable. This older brother in the story, the one who's been compliant, who's always been respectful, ever ready to help, never took the money and ran, he's not too keen on what just happened. And his message to his father is, this isn't fair. Why are you throwing this huge block party for this ungrateful, self-absorbed, arrogant, disrespectful son of yours? You've never lifted a single toast to me, ever. And I've been here by your side all along. The bottom line is we, we don't like grace. We don't like unconditional love. It, it collides with our performance-based religious system. We have a hard time with God's grace because being given to others we don't think deserve it. And in more honest moments, we don't accept it very easily ourselves either. Because grace leaves us totally out of control. And that's tough to swallow. It's, it's reckless. So we create a system we can live with. A hybrid system of grace and works. It's not really Jesus plus nothing, but Jesus plus a few core elements that we've decided are important 
to secure God's favor and love. It's, it's a designer religious system with a lot of talk about Jesus and a lot of hope in Jesus and a lot of faith in Jesus along with some hand-picked, non-negotiable rules to follow in order to satisfy God. The reason I've done this is I need my righteousness to be all about Jesus. But to be honest, I want it to be a little bit about me too, even if it's the slightest bit. I want a little bit of credit for getting it right, for figuring it out. Fortunately, that's not the deal Jesus brings to the table. The deal he brings to the table is it's either all of him or all of me. There is no middle ground. If legalism leaves us with a feeling of anxiety or arrogance or hopelessness, Jesus' narrative grounded in unconditional love leads us to peace and rest and freedom and humility. And it's exactly what Brent talked about before we took communion together. See how this sounds to you. The mature Christian isn't the one who gets it right all the time. The mature Christian is the one who comes to know God more over a lifetime. The way of legalism says our nearness to God is based on our accomplishments. The way of unconditional love says our nearness to God is based on Christ's accomplishments. Legalism focuses first on doing and becoming. Unconditional love focuses first on believing and being. So how would you answer the Chicago Sun-Times reporter's question about heaven? Um, does your answer have much to do with you? Maybe a little bit to do with you? Does your answer lean into your performance, or do you fall completely on Jesus' performance and perfection? Listen to one of the best, best answers I've ever heard to the question we're thinking about. Uh, Paul writes this in Galatians 2.20, and I'm going to read from the message version. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. My ego is no longer central. It is no longer important that I appear righteous before you or have your good opinion, and I'm no longer driven to impress God. Christ lives in me. The life you see me living is not mine, but it is lived by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I'm not going to go back on that. Is it not clear to you that to go back to that old rule-keeping, peer-pleasing religion would be an abandonment of everything personal and free in my relationship with God. I refuse to do that, to repudiate God's grace. If a living relationship with God could come by rule-keeping, then Christ died unnecessarily. If a living relationship with God could come by rule-keeping, then Christ died unnecessarily. We can't say that enough. We can't hear that enough. Paul says, Jesus is my answer, so I'll live for him every day. Jesus answers the question more directly. In John 6, 28, his disciples ask him, what must we do to do the works God requires? That sounds like the question of a legalist. And Jesus' answer was very simple. The work of God is this to believe in the one he has sent. The love God has for you and me is truly amazing. It's astounding. It's overwhelming. It's unconditional. 
and it's available to everyone. No ingredients necessary, no additives required. Anyone can believe in Jesus just the way you are. No strings attached. We planned uh, two songs for you to enjoy as we wrap up our time in here this morning together. Uh, The first is Amazing Love. The worship team is going to sing this, giving you time to think and pray and just give thanks to God for this unconditional love that he offers you. And the second we'll sing together is In Christ Alone. Let's all 